that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify powers in-person selling too? From events to farmer's markets to shows, Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. I've definitely been selling at an event and struggled between reconciling payment processors, inventory before and after the event, and easy reporting. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Prep for your next event with hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash startup CPG, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash startup CPG to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash startup CPG. You got to be passionate and to be convicted in your belief of this is why I'm doing it this way and this is what I want the world to benefit from. That has to be absolutely positively unwavering. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. I don't usually like to play favorites, but this week's episode is a really special interview, especially for me personally. I love kombucha. I mean, love kombucha. And as you'll hear me mention during the interview, once I found Synergy Kombucha by GT's Living Foods, I was hooked and dug deep into the story of how it's made and started following founder GT Dave. I've listened to many interviews with GT over the years, so the chance to be the interviewer and spend some time with GT is a personal dream come true. I also really thought that GT could offer a really interesting perspective to our community. He's had multiple offers to acquire his company over the years and has taken on no outside investment, which is incredible for a nearly billion dollar brand that owns 40% of the kombucha market. For almost 30 years, he's operated as the 100% owner and as you'll hear, has no plans for that to change. I think there's room for so many different operating models and perspectives in this space. And part of the fun of my job is getting to share different perspectives, hoping that you'll be able to find and take pieces that resonate with you as you build your own adventure. If you aren't familiar with GT's Living Foods, you've no doubt seen the ubiquitous tall glass bottles with a white lotus. The Synergy line is often what people recognize. GT was the first person to bottle kombucha back in 1995 after his parents received a SCOBY from a friend after a trip to the Himalayas. And this was well before you could Google making kombucha. As you'll hear GT mention, he saw kombucha become part of his parents' lives, help his mom while recovering from cancer, and he decided to try to sell a few bottles to the local health store as a 15-year-old who had dropped out of high school. He then got the product into Erewhon and Whole Foods and has grown steadily while other kombuchas have entered the market and now it's a whole separate category. GT continues to innovate in the living food space with ancient mushroom elixirs, non-dairy water kefir, and raw fermented non-dairy coconut yogurt. I've linked a few of my favorite other interviews with GT in the show notes in case you really want to dig into more of the founding story. Today's conversation, we really focus on leadership, culture, hiring, and health and priorities as a founder. Listen in as GT shares about how fermenting kombucha is similar to farming and how their manufacturing footprint has grown, GT's first hires and learnings, and why he focuses on culture fit, what it's looked like to grow a profitable business with no outside investment, why he's taken a long-term view on building GT's living foods, 
his advice for starting new categories and educating consumers, how they manage a massive brand ambassador force, what health and wellness looks like day to day, and his tips for prioritizing, and the importance of communicating and setting expectations and relationships as a founder, how he manages being a public figure, and why he's chosen to be a visible face of the brand. We have some fun with questions about his love of animals and pets and Halloween, and so much more. Hi, GT. Welcome to the show today. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. It is my pleasure. I'm so happy to have you here. It's a huge honor for me to get to chat with you. And, you know, I've been a fan of, you know, the Synergy kombuchas and really all your additional product lines as well over the years. I think, you know, I tried first tried kombucha maybe what if, it must have been around 2015, a little, little later than the game than I wish I was um, here in Portland. And I tried it and I was like, this is really intriguing. Kind of was trying all the brands. And then I tried one of the Synergy flavors and I was like, well, this, like, this is perfect. Like whoever made this, like, this is what I want to drink more of. And then that's when I really, I started, you know, Googling who made this. And then I found, I found you read a little bit about the story and then was like, oh, this is the person who's responsible for bottling my favorite drink and creating you know, my basically one of my favorite industries. And so, you know, Lavender Love is my personal favorite flavor, I think, of all time. Golden Pineapple is a close second. But yeah, it just it's uh, it's so fun because I am I love kombucha. I drink a lot of it, not nearly as much as you, <laughs> I believe, with all the taste testing that you do and everything. But yeah, I'm just I love uh, the industry that you've built. And just I'm so grateful for the work that you put in for all of us to be able to enjoy, you know, a product that didn't used to exist on the market. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, we do pour our hearts and souls into every bottle and batch we make. And as I'm sure you know about kombucha, it's not something that's easy to make because you really grow it more than you make it. And it's very sensitive to how it's made and who's making it and the energy around it. So we do really see it as a labor of love. Yeah, I love that. At one point, I was like, maybe I'll try to make kombucha. I think I bought the original, um, you know, your original flavor. And I was like, I'm going to grow my own SCOBY. And I did grow a SCOBY, um, but it did not. I never got it to taste great. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep supporting the company that I know makes it taste awesome <laughs> and keep supporting them existing in the world and making great kombucha. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, work on farming it on my own. So <laughs> Um, I did, that little attempt made me realize, oh my gosh, this is such a process. And I think you've kind of referred to it as like more similar to farming than, you know, it's not like if somebody says, Hey, we need more kombucha. You can't just magically make it happen. You know, it's gotta, it's gotta ferment. It's gotta grow. That's exactly right. I mean, we see our kombucha more as a form of agriculture than we do like a soda or a tea where you're just basically mixing water with flavor and sweetness or something like that. And and that's actually how I fell in love with kombucha is when, you know, my parents were making it in the early 90s and they were making it and drinking it religiously. And, you know, just watching it being made, you you, you almost immediately appreciate some of the, the ceremonial aspects of making kombucha where, you know, you really are like growing a plant, um, participating in the, the, the magic that I think Mother Nature creates whenever she creates something. And so kombucha is no exception. So that's something, you know, that I felt almost tasked with to make it my personal mission to not only share kombucha with the world, but also to protect it. Yeah, oh, I love that. And it's amazing that, you know, your parents were, 
I, I believe they're essentially gifted a SCOBY from that someone brought back from like the Himalayas. And then here we are 25 plus 27 years later, you're making millions of bottles a day, but still in the small, like five gallon batches. It's just, it's so incredible. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk us a little bit about like what, what it looks like today, like, you know, to, to exist as a company, like, you know, how big is your manufacturing? Like how big is the team now? I believe you have hundreds of people, like, you know, just what's the kind of lay of the land for you and what's the day, what's the day in the life like for you? Well, it's funny. I mean, what hasn't changed is the way we make kombucha. I mean, the way I made it for my parents' kitchen when I first started my company in 1995 is, believe it or not, the exact same way that we make it today. So to kind of paint a picture for you and the audience, I mean, we start off with organic green and black tea. And then for those that don't know a lot about kombucha, actually, because it's a living thing, it requires a source of energy or food for it to consume and therefore to kind of allow it to grow and reproduce. So in kombucha, it's basically a form of carbo. It's a carbohydrate that you can use. So it could be um, organic cane sugar. It can be honey. It can be agave. It can be fruit juice. So at GTs, we use kiwi juice because it creates a nice kind of tangy flavor note for the finished product. So we blend the tea with the kiwi juice, and then we take what's called a SCOBY, which is an acronym for a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. Looks a lot like a pancake because it's circular in shape and somewhat rubbery in texture. And you place that in what we do is it's a five gallon vessel. Um, so that's why we say our batches are small enough to hug because, you know, <laughs> even like a teenager can lift it up. And we place the SCOBY in this vessel, cover it, and allow it to kind of naturally ferment in a warm, peaceful, kind of almost like nursery type vibe uh, environment where it's fermented for 30 days. And then after the fermentation, the kiwi juice has been mostly consumed by the culture. Caffeine and tannins in the tea has been virtually removed because all these things are nutrients for the culture to grow. And what it does in return is it consumes these and then replaces them with organic acids, enzymes, probiotics, and other nutrients that we can benefit from that improve our health. And so when the tea is finished with its fermentation, it's no longer sweet. It's now tangy and tart. It has this natural effervescence, and it's also rich with all the nutrients that I just shared. And in addition to that, the culture itself also reproduces. So at the end of the 30 days, not only do you have what's now called kombucha, which is the liquid, but you also have two cultures that you can now use to make two batches. And that's what is part of the beauty of kombucha. It's very regenerative, very sustainable, and again, very similar to what Mother Nature does as she she constantly reproduces herself. Um, and so at GTs, just to, again, paint the picture of how we make our kombucha, because we limit ourselves to the five-gallon vessel size, unlike the 50 to, to 100,000 gallons that a lot of our competitors sometimes use for efficiency's sake, at any given point, we can have hundreds of thousands of these five-gallon vessels going on in our facility, you know, again, we, we call the fermentation room where we make the kombucha kind of like a nursery, because that's really where, similar to a, a baby that's just been born, that's really kind of their first taste of the world. And so we, we, we hold it in very high regard and treat it very sacredly. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's amazing. I think you, you have like over like a half million square feet of like facility space. Is that right? 
Yes, that's exactly right. And the reason why that is, is that, again, like using the analogy of a farmer, you know, compared to that of call it a soda pop maker, you know, the Cokes and the Pepsis of the world, if they want to make more of their products, they just kind of essentially open up the spigot more, blend more water and flavor and carbonation. And that's how they make their products. And all you really need is basically faster equipment. With kombucha, you know, yes, it's nice to have fast bottling equipment, but that's not really what makes kombucha kombucha. It's this fermentation. And therefore, just like a farmer tending to his or her crops, the more you want to grow, the more land you you need. And so that's why over the course of the last almost three decades that we've been around, we've kind of took over about a half a million square feet of production space to allow us to make the kombucha that we make to that supplies basically all of North America. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I I grew up on a on a farm and as many of our regular listeners may know and so I I love the um you know I can really relate to to the the farming piece and you know with with all with doing your own manufacturing and then you've got you know marketing teams sales teams for you like you know what is your you know a day or maybe even a week I'm sure every day can kind of be different you know are you you out on the floor? Are you meeting with, you know, marketing teams, you know, helping lead different teams? Like what is what does it look like now for you, you know, yeah, kind of day in the life? Yeah. Well, I think the best way to answer it is I'm involved in all of the above. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's there's not to oversimplify it, but I will for a second. There really is two types of entrepreneurs. There's entrepreneurs that for whatever reason just tend to want to be involved in maybe like sales marketing and finance, right? So they they want to make sure that their business is doing financially well, want to make sure that sales are growing and that marketing's kind of slick, slick, cool and keeping the brand relevant. All of which is very important. But um at times that means that they're really not participating in product development, um innovation, production, some of those the supply chain, some of the not as sexy aspects of a business, but certainly much, you know, very critical. For me, I'm the second type of entrepreneur, which is involved in everything. And I think, honestly, the the reason why that is for me and for people like me is that, you know, I started my my company from scratch, essentially. Um, I didn't have any investors, didn't have a partner. I was just really a young lad because I was about 15 years old that I just wanted to do something with my life. And I was really inspired by how special kombucha was. And, you know, as I mentioned, my parents were making it and drinking it and it ended up actually helping my mom with her breast cancer. So it was her story that kind of motivated me to do something. And and therefore, I I honestly wasn't like monetarily driven or even Mm -hmm. success driven. I just wanted to do something that I believed in. And I think when an entrepreneur starts with that kind of foundation and always, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, you're, you feel it's almost like a parent raising their child. You feel just kind of almost obligated and committed to be being involved in this in every aspect of the life that you're trying to that you've given birth to, so to speak. And so that's why with my company, and this is now answering your question specifically, is I'm involved in everything. So it varies from day to day, but you know it, it involves certainly taste testing product. I believe that quality is king, and that's the most important thing no matter what, more important than marketing, more important than sales or finance, you got to make sure that what you're creating is the best that it can be and that you're staying true to why you got started. Um, Because it's very easy to lose sight of that. 
So I'm involved in the production, taste testing. I, I love innovation and R&D. So all the products we make from the different um, product families, I'm the guy behind them. And that's something I really enjoy. I'm also involved in, in marketing, a little bit in sales. Sales to me is a little transactional because it's more about selling. I like more of like a, a visceral connection with things, whether it's my products, my employees, or ultimately the, the you know individuals that we are conducting business with. And then I do believe that finance is important. So I'm involved heavily in kind of the day-to-day um, financial aspects of the business because that's actually where a lot of entrepreneurs can get caught with their pants down, whereas they have other people handling their finances and they wake up one day and they're like, oh my God, we're out of money or we need to raise money. And then that's where you get pulled in potentially into that trap of having to raise capital and selling you know, your, your equity and bringing on an investor and, you know, not to say that it's always bad, but that can really complicate things. So I've been fortunate enough to have to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. There's multiple things I want to dig into there. I also want to note for people, when you say that you taste every batch, that is like more than a gallon of kombucha a day though, right? Like we're talking a lot of kombucha. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's quite a bit. I clocked it somewhere between a gallon and a half to two gallons a day. And, you know, it's funny because I am essentially the living guinea pig of, mm-hmm. to answer the question of like, can you drink too much kombucha? I think <laughs> my experience is case in point that you can't really, even though I by no means encourage people to drink as much as I do, but you know, it comes with a job. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And yeah, I think your your perspective on growing your brand is is so fascinating too. And that was one of the things I was excited about having you on the show, because I think that there's there's a lot of different ways people are growing, you know, food and beverages. Uh, now, I think I've heard you say like different strokes for different folks, which I I really like the um, the phrase. But I think the perspective you've ta- you've taken like a really long term view, like you're in the details. You want to grow this out. You've had multiple offers for acquisitions. And I've, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about that, about your mindset of you know, you're, you're the sole owner of the company, you've stayed with it, you turned down those acquisitions. And because I think it's helpful for folks to kind of hear different strategies. I know some brands, you know, you know, they get acquired, or they're focused on acquisition, or they get into the business for different reasons. And I think your perspective, I've always found really fascinating and refreshing. And and so I'm kind of curious on that kind of long term view, you've taken almost three decades in, if you can share a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to. So again, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the analogy, but you know, the, the way I see my business and our brands and the things that we're doing is in many ways like a, a parent raising a child, right? I don't think any parent truly gives birth to a child thinking like, oh, I can't wait to marry them off and send them away so I'll never see them again, right? Because then you could ask yourself, what's the point of having a child? So for me, starting a business, which at the time, as I mentioned earlier, didn't feel like I was truly starting a business. I felt that I was just following a passion mm-hmm. and and creating something that I believed in and protecting something that I felt needed to be protected because I felt it could bring a lot of good to the world. So that was always my North Star and continues to be. And that kind of informs why I'm in this for the long run. You know, first of all, I feel very blessed to do something that I love that provides, you know, a livelihood for me and my family, as well as other families. Um, it's something that I'm passionate for and something that, again, I, I just personally enjoy. And so, you know, it's hard to say that, especially after 28 years. So 
in my mind, why would I, why would I throw this away? Why would I sell it to run, roll the dice of like, okay, what are the chances of me finding something like this again? Because it's not lost on me. I mean, I interact with a lot of people, my friends, you know, I, I try to stay grounded. And what I've learned is that people actually can spend their entire life trying to find that one thing that they're passionate about that they can get behind. And so I feel like I've, I've found it. So, so again, why would I turn my back on it? The other thing is, you know, unfortunately, there's always exceptions, but whenever I have personally witnessed an incredible brand that's been sold off to a bigger company, I would say nine out of 10 times doesn't get better. Um, and it usually gets worse. Because what happens is, and I don't even think it's intentional at times, it's just more somewhat consequential or just, it's, it's just part of the process is when something big consumes something small, they do that because, you know, big brands can't behave small. But once you acquire a small brand, it's almost inevitable sooner or later, the culture and kind of behavior of the big brand thinking is going to somewhat contaminate the small brand thinking. And the next thing you know, that small brand has lost its identity. It's lost its purpose. It's lost kind of its sexiness because what makes small brands sexy is they can do things that big brands can't do. They can take chances. They can take risks. They can color outside the lines. And once you get absorbed by a big brand, all of that goes away. And then the heart and soul is gone. In summary, because everything that I make is a personal passion of mine and it bears my name, I just wouldn't feel comfortable selling it off for no matter how much amount of money that I'd be offered in exchange for the risk of the quality and integrity to go down, for me to be regretful of the fact that like essentially my child I, I abandoned. And and so that's why I'm here and I'm here to stay. And I, I feel very blessed to be able to do what I do. And that's why I have no plans on selling or no plans in kind of stopping what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's that's really helpful and, and just inspiring. And I, I am curious because also I, I don't believe you've ever raised any outside investment money. And, you know, has it over the time you've been growing this, like I assume as like a 15, 16 year old, most 15, 16 year olds are you know, aren't, aren't thinking about, you know, CPG grocery store margins kind of thing. Like, you know, what does it kind of look like for you to build a business that could support, you know, long-term, you see a lot of brands kind of go in like not profitable, like raise money kind of to like help, you know, with that eye on acquisition. And so you've had to build a profitable business because you're not, you're not waiting for that, you know, exit or anything. And so can you share a little bit about what that's looked like? Have you had to figure out along the way, like, you know, especially when you were younger of like, oh, like this is what it looks like to actually make money doing this and make sure that the business keeps existing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, especially in the early stages of, of your company's life, you have to be obsessive about making sure that you're being financially responsible. And that's difficult, I think, for a lot of brands because they they want to grow their sales they want to grow their distribution they even sometimes want to expand their lines and do you know flavor extensions and things of that nature all of which require money and you can sometimes get caught up in that and then forget that making money is important so when ever since i started you know i was fortunate that i was basically a one man show so i didn't really have an overhead and i was making my kombucha from my parents kitchen for the first 2 years of my company's life 
So what that meant is not only did I not have a labor overhead, but I didn't even have a rent overhead. And every single literal penny that I made would go back into the business. I didn't pay myself. You know, fortunately, I was staying at home, so I kind of didn't need to. And I just kind of squirreled away all the profit from the company. So when it was time to move out, get a commercial facility, start hiring, I had that savings to get behind it. And then from that point forward, I was just always about, and it was somewhat in the back of my consciousness. I mean, it certainly was intentional where I was very sensitive to not grow too fast. And and there was two reasons there. I didn't want to grow too fast because I didn't want to lose quality because that's where a lot of brands mess up is they want to take over the world overnight. And then they realize that you can't preserve the integrity of your products if you grow that quickly. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, I think I was somewhat like an overprotective parent, as I've said before in the past, where I just wanted to keep my products special and close to me. So I didn't want them to be nationwide. I mean, for the first three years, it was basically only sold in like California. And so the point of all this is that I think when you're very cautiously optimistic and very conservative and very sensitive with where you go and how you get there, you you preserve your profitability and therefore... And you main, and you start to almost like establish a certain behavior of, again, of being financially conservative that you don't have to worry about, am I profitable or am I losing money and things of that nature? Um, and that's why even today, you know, we don't have the advertising budgets that a lot of our competing brands in the kombucha space, as well as in the adjacent functional beverage space have and use because, you know, a lot of those brands aren't profitable and a lot of those brands are just positioned to sell which is fine. But for us, you know, we want to grow our business responsibly. Mm -hmm. um, And therefore, we kind of take the path less traveled, which is kind of, as we've used the phrase, like, um, slow is steady and steady is fast or something like that, where it's like, Mm -hmm. if you just do it kind of steady, Eddie, you'll you'll get there, may take a little bit more time. But when you get there, it'll be so much more of a richer experience. than if you just if you just raced to that destination, if that makes sense. Right? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Because yeah, I think it was, you know, you, you mentioned like you got into Whole Foods, like, you know, four years or so in and then like national was like that was 2005 ish, right about that was like 10 years in when when you took everything national, right? Yeah. And that was interesting, because you know, what I had to do to almost essentially resist the growth to be nationwide sooner than 10 years since I started is I had to say no to a lot of opportunities, which was hard for me and and even ultimately hard for the other party that was being somewhat denied. Um, because, you know, brands, when you're riding that wave, you almost feel like if I don't say yes now, maybe this opportunity won't come to me. And I certainly had those moments where I had to tell like a major nationwide chain, like I'm not ready to sell to you right now. So that was some real, those are really tough decisions. But luckily, I think the universe was on my side because when I was ready, they were, they were still ready and, and things worked. And, and so I didn't make some of the big mistakes that I sometimes think that, think that you can make if you move too fast too soon, but it, de- it definitely required a lot of self-control. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you know, you mentioned being a one man show for a long time. Like, I think like, you know, those, those first 10 years, and then now you have a team, you have hundreds of people that you work with. And I'm wondering with, for you, like what it has looked like to kind of level up as a leader. Like when you work on your own for 10 years to then go to having a lot of employees, like I assume there's some learning curve in there of, you know, working with lots of other people and, you know, 
just manage, you know, when you go from five to 10, 10 to, you know, 50, 50 to 100, like all those stages that that seems like a lot to manage. And I'm curious for you what that process has been like. Has it required some, you know, introspection or like some conscious like, all right, these are the things I want to focus on as a leader? Like, what has that process been like for you? It's an interesting process. I mean, again, I, I say this somewhat jokingly, but there is some seriousness, seriousness in the statement is hiring employees is a lot like dating to get married. And I, the reason why I say that is there are versions of intimate relationships. Like we all know that at times we can spend more time with the people we work with than the people we you know are married to or, mm-hmm. or, or even are related to family and what have you. So, you know, therefore, and you always have that disadvantage where unlike real life, like you can go on a series of dates and have a series of interactions before you get married in the employment space, maybe have like a handful of interactions and then you're basically going to get married. And so, you know, what I've always tried to do is make sure first and foremost, that there's just alignment. There's alignment philosophically, there's alignment even spiritually, and then there's an alignment in just in the work ethic. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that at my company, I think one of the secrets of our success, or at least one of the reasons why we're successful is we're ambitious, right? Like the way I describe my personality is I'm intense, <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, and I'm in- incredibly ambitious. And so that is that translates into very fast pace and like no room for error and perfection of the standard. And so that does require a certain type of individual. So when I first started building out my team, you know, I don't think initially I was aware of how specific I had to be. So there were a couple of mistakes. And I don't even want to necessarily call them mistakes because I definitely learned from them. But let's just say there was certain situations where they didn't unfold the way I wanted to because I didn't maybe scrutinize that philosophical and spiritual and professional alignment as I to the degree that I needed to. So I learned that very quickly. And that's why silly things like learning people's astrological charts, learning like people's kind of greater beliefs and and passions is really important because it does become part of their DNA of who they are, or who they will become as an employee. And so, you know, that's why there's a lot of energy and a lot of attention that's put into identifying who it is that we need to work with and what they need to have from a personality standpoint to be successful. And it's a journey and it's an ongoing journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate your introspection around, you know, your, your leadership style. And I think I heard once you say that, you know, you'll, if you haven't been able to work out in the morning that you, you've canceled a meeting before, you don't want to, you don't want to deal with me after, um, after I haven't worked out in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think again, cause we're humans, we're not machines. Mm-hmm. And I need to make sure like for me, eight hours or more of sleep and a nice, good workout is, is the fuel that I need to be at my best. And if I don't get that, then I won't be at my best. And I recognize that. So I, I modify my schedule accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. And, and to your note on just like, you know, kind of finding people with the right energy, I think I think you had an employee who kind of, you know, started in uh, in maybe manufacturing and then essentially just like really was the right fit culturally and has worked all the way up to like executive level and then helps, you know, helps find the right, you know, decide who's going to be a fit for the culture. Like, you know, can you share a little bit more about that or, you know, other employees who have just kind of like, you know, they've been a fit and how that helps kind of maintain the culture. Cause you know, at this point it's, it, it's not, it can't all 
be on you. Like, you know, I assume that you got everybody that kind of fits and then everyone's kind of helping find the right fit and maintaining the culture that, you know, the, the right culture. No, that's exactly right. I mean, because what I didn't mention, but I think you and the audience may already know this, but I, I dropped out of high school before I started my company. And the reason why that's important, and I'm not saying like this is the right way of doing things, this is just how I do things, is that I guess because I don't have, you know, a, a really impressive academic background, I therefore don't put a whole lot of weight on mm -hmm. someone's academic background. I think it's important, don't get me wrong. But I think there are some companies that like they only hire MBAs. And, you know, I think that's interesting and certainly can work. And depending on the relationship as well, and depending on the, that brand, if that brand's like hyper-technical, hyper-transactional, like MBAs are great. But I think for something like what we do at GT is where it's a lot more heartfelt, again, this homegrown farmer vibe, and that kind of philosophy and ethos is threaded throughout everything we do from finance to operations to marketing and so forth. You know, I tend to like to find individuals that, yeah, it'd be great you have a solid background, whether that's academic or whether that's just your, your career and past lives at other companies. But what you can't teach is attitude. And so that's why I probably over-index or overemphasize attitude over even academics. And because that means that if, if, if you have an attitude and a perspective that's aligned with mine and the businesses, then, then that is something that you can't fake and you can't teach everything else you can teach skills you can certain skills you can teach and so that's why like in our in the hiring process and the relationships that i've i've cultivated with my employees it's always just making sure first and foremost that we uh, we are of a like mind mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i i really i really like that and i also just uh i've i've found that you know true and has worked well in my own experience too some of the best people that I've hired have, you know, like I've just, I've seen their work, I've interacted with them and I'm like, this is a person that I want to hire. And then, you know, they're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't have the, the educational background for that job where I'm like, well, yeah, but you got the right attitude. Like, we'll figure it out. Like, let's, let's make it happen. Like, I can tell that you're, you're the person that's the right fit. And I want to work with you as a, as a fellow human. And, you know, we'll figure out all the rest is just all details versus what, you know, what fancy certificates or, you know, or education you have. So I, I really love that you brought that up. Yeah, you're right. I mean, again, perspective is informed so much. And so it's always important to understand people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, since we talked a little bit about, you know, like you're, you're trying to get eight hours of sleep and, you know, working out and, you know, I feel like there's a lot of pressure when you're growing a company to kind of cut corners on taking your care of yourself, especially for founders. It's a big topic in our community of founders trying to find balance, trying to get sleep um, and those kind of things. And it seems like you've always really prioritized that. And also you've had some like interesting schedules that you've set up like that work for you like i think when you started in your parents like you were working like from like midnight to the morning like to make sure there was like no interference with the batches like you've like you've been a like a night owl at, like at certain stages like i'm curious if you can kind of talk about how you've prioritized yourself have you felt a lot of pressure to give up those those things and you know like just what has that looked like i think our you know listeners could you know just kind of really relate to um you know any tips you have for for taking care of yourself so that you can you know you can keep doing what you love in the long run absolutely well so there really is there's two things 
that I think you have to sort out when you're a, an entrepreneur is one is your health, right? And that is subjective because what keeps people mentally and physically healthy is not the same. You know, it's not a, it, it, it's not a, the same standard across everybody, right? It's, it's very subjective. So for me, it's sleep and exercise. And then what I should add is probably a third is, is obviously a good diet. But that to me kind of manages itself because over the course of the last few years, I've been able to develop some of the standard way of eating that I don't even have to think about it. But sleep and exercise requires more thought. And so that is like the health bucket. The other one, which is tricky because it, it, it's very contingent on where you are in your life. Because like, again, you know, I was very fortunate to start my business when I was a teenager. I, you know, therefore was very young. I didn't have a wife or kids or a mortgage or any of those kind of obligations or, or responsibilities. So I was able to, you know, yes, there was a, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of sacrificing on my personal life. Like I had no friends, no social life, you know, not to get TMI, but I was like a virgin until like my early 20s because I didn't even have the opportunity to like date. I mean, I was mm -hmm. basically like asexual. Um, and so, you know, that was hard, but it, it was not an issue for me because the exchange of being able to build something that I loved was great. So in my mind, I had balance, even though to the outsider looking in, getting up at, as you mentioned, midnight is not normal, but it, it didn't affect me that way. I think where entrepreneurs have to be careful is, yes, you've got to always take care of your health. And that is really important because if you're not healthy, you're not going to be very useful for your business. You know, mm -hmm. you're not going to be thinking clearly you'll start getting sick, like only bad things will come. And that's why it's important to take care of your health. But on the other side of the spectrum, which is what I'm referencing more of these um, other responsibilities that are perhaps to family, even friends and lovers, you know, you really have to manage expectations. And, it, and you need to make sure that again, your eyes wide open to the circumstances around you. So like, for example, if you're in a relationship, or better yet, you have a family, you know, if, if you're seeing that what this hypothetically, this business that you're about to start is going to require, is going to take you away from your family or away from your loved ones. Like you're going to have to really sort that out up front and be really honest about it because people don't do that. And then they realize that it becomes a problem and it can actually somewhat be somewhat cancerous to your professional growth because there's something on the side that's like this black cloud, this unresolved issue that's starting to kind of rear its ugly head and, and creating kind of an uncomfortable situation. So you have to really get in front of it and establish like, get everything out in the open, get a lay of the land and almost establish certain guardrails. So you don't wake up and go, oh my God, I, I'm going through a divorce because I didn't spend enough time with my wife or my kids don't know who I am because I didn't spend any time with them. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that you want to get in front of and make certain commitments and so to avoid as much as you can an unfortunate outcome there. Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's easy to. I, I say a lot of time, like my business is my firstborn and my first marriage. And, you know, I say that to my husband and, and even to my kids sometimes, which is like, hey, like I got to take care of this it, within reason. And so as long as everybody understands it, then I think things will be good. That understanding is critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that note on the just the upfront communication and laying it out there so that everyone knows what you're getting into. It's when, like you said, it sits on the sidelines and simmers and that that clarity is super important. It really is. You know, kind of going back to some early days of hiring, like 
what were some of your first hires in the in the company? Like, do you have any stories around maybe the first couple people you hired? Like, did you hire people first to help you make kombucha? Did you hire, you know, people on the sales side? Like, you know, maybe your first couple, does it do any stand out to you as like, you know, big moments of of hiring and just kind of growing out your team in the early days? Yes, there definitely was. I mean, I had a variety of experiences and, you know, I think again, because I'm such a perfectionist, I was reluctant to delegate the secret sauce, so to speak. So the actual making of kombucha was the last thing that I delegated because I mm. felt, you know, that was the most special and the, and needed therefore to be protected the most. So what I delegated initially was like the labeling, the delivery, the sales, all those things that really didn't affect the actual quality and integrity of the physical product. And then my Big biggest moment, which took a while to be honest, which which was when I eventually found somebody that I could hire with confidence and trust to make the kombucha the way that I would make it, which is with like 100% pure love, care, and in the quality and all of that. And you know, it 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 took a while to relinquish that fear or concern about giving it to someone else. But once I was able to, it was a beautiful experience. It's almost like falling in love, where you're like, wow you know, now I know what everybody's talking about, or this feeling is like something I've never felt before. There was this beautiful moment of being able to delegate something as important as making my kombucha. And then, but also at the same time, having confidence that it was going to go well. So that was a big moment. But to be honest, the biggest, which I'll say, which I'll share really quickly is I, when I hired my first manager who was in charge of production, he got, he unfortunately started to have some problems at home where him and his wife were fighting. I think she might have been having an affair or something like that. Long story short, he ended up having a heart attack at home one weekend and, oh and passed away. And the reason why this is an important story is it actually references the sensitivity that kombucha has with how it's made and who is making it. So this individual's name was Alfredo. Alfredo seemed to be very unhappy because of his challenges at home for a minimum of two weeks. And so what happened was after he passed away, every batch that he made within that two-week period of where he was very unhappy, they all turned moldy. And none of them, none of the cultures reproduced, none of the tea fermented, they basically just died. And so it was really interesting that it almost felt that like, and this was a, a, an eye-opening moment for me of, again, like, hey, you need to be very sensitive to who you let make your kombucha because there's almost like a transfer of energy. And so mm -hmm. it reminded me that he was unhappy, therefore his batches were unhappy, and therefore they were not healthy because their lack of happiness. And so that was just, again, a permanent reminder of you, we, I have to be very careful of who I let make the kombucha because, again, it's, it's a very personal expression and it is at a transfer of energy, like I said. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, Interesting, that's really right? wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of your, your products are, you know, like the name live, living foods. So yeah, that's, that's wow. Are there any other, like, you know, any other stories from some of those first few hires that you had or, you know, anything that you, any big learnings that you had, like from employees that you, you hired as you scaled? Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm super, I'm always super, super curious of stories from those kind of, you know, when you're kind of under 10 employees, those, those first few hires always seem really, you know, critical and formative to a business. They really are. And, and again, it, it goes, I can't stress enough the importance of ensuring alignment, you know, physically, philosophically, spiritually, you know, all of that, because once you have that, you almost 
feel like you're a family. And I know, you know, family, the term family can be sometimes overused in business and somewhat misused. But, you know, certainly when you're 10 or smaller, you need to have that family vibe, right? Everybody needs to feel connected and valued and part of something bigger than them. Because with that, like just, I don't know, there's just something magical happens. It can't be transactional. Like you can't be having just nine or 10 individuals that are there just because of a paycheck because it, it will show. And so in my opinion, you know, whether it's 10 or 10 people or 10,000 people, it gets harder as you scale because, I mean, I'll admit, like, I don't know the names of every employee that I employ. Mm-hmm. I once did, but now I, I just can't. And so that's just case in point that it's in that it's inevitable that as you grow, you can't be exactly the same as you were when you were smaller. But generally speaking, you can. I mean, I, I really encourage my management team to have a relationship with their direct reports as if we were, you know, a 10 person company. So there's ways to do it, but you got to put forth the effort and it's easier said than done. Do you feel like your email and SMS marketing campaigns are falling flat? If you want to increase customer retention and convert leads, a winning email and SMS marketing strategy is a must have. Strategy Maven Agency transforms your email and SMS program to help you increase sales, build real customer loyalty, and focus on impactful results. Strategy Maven Agency delivers to help scale your brand, especially if you feel frustrated by revenue plateaus, were let down by another agency, would rather use your time to focus on other initiatives, or if you've let your email and SMS program get a little neglected. They are experts, aka mavens, and will treat your CPG brand like their own. So say goodbye to cookie cutter strategies and promises without execution. For a free account audit, go to strategymavenagency.com and mention Startup CPG. That's strategymavenagency.com and be sure to mention Startup CPG for a free account audit. Hey there, this is Kim on the Startup CPG team. Did you know that over 70% of in-store promotions are not effective and over 80% of brands will fail while promoting at the shelf? but you have to run promotions with retailers. So what's the solution? Thankfully, Promomash, the only all-in-one promotion management platform, and Crisp, a leading retail data platform that integrates with over 40 retailers, have developed a joint solution that gives CPG brands a level of visibility and control they've never had before over their trade spend and promo performance. A free 30-day risk-free trial is available exclusively for startup CPG members. Just go to promomash.com slash startup CPG. Promomash is spelled P-R-O-M-O-M-A-S-H. To see for yourself what more effective promotion planning looks like, that's promomash.com slash startup CPG, or the link is in the show notes. How do you kind of in that area of, you know, staying uh, on track of everything and, and you mentioned kind of like how hard it is to, you know, give up certain parts of of the business, like when you were initially having someone else make the, you know, making the product like, you know, do you have any tips for, you know, for founders navigating the different aspects of the business? Like, you know, you're eventually you're hiring experts in these these different functions. And for you, like, what has it looked like to kind of educate yourself in a function like marketing, for example, but also hire experts in that area and manage those experts? Like, 
Do you have any tips for kind of how you stay on top of like, what's the right path forward? Also trusting the people that you hired, like it can be kind of tricky to navigate and wonder if anything comes to mind for you. You're right. It can be very tricky. And I think what's very important because this is actually where a lot of companies screw things up, right? As they get bigger, they start bringing in these outside resources, these experts, these consultants, these advisors, and they sometimes just take their advice blindly because they go, you know, this guy has an MBA or this guy has an impressive resume or this gal did all these great things. And I think, yes, that's important. But, you know, what What my personal approach has been is, as I said earlier, is every brand and entrepreneur needs to have his or her North Star. And the North Star is, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I got into this. And this is what I'm looking to accomplish. And you almost, it almost has to be like your constitution where you like write it down and you don't change it and you put it in like a glass case. And it, it's like, it's basically gospel. And so like for me, I always wanted to make great products that improve people's health and lives. And again, is really honoring mother nature. And that was and is my North Star. And so when you know, a lot of times when these advisors come in, they, 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 and there's always exceptions. So this is something that, again, is just a general statement, but they, they, te- they typically come in with like the same approach, which is like, all right, let's cut costs and let's get lean or let's grow faster. And it's almost like I call it like the steroid approach. And I say that because like I'm a fitness guy and I've never done steroids and I've seen guys and gals that have, and yeah, they look great initially, but it's such a shortcut that at some mm-hmm. point something bad happens, right? And so that's what happens when, when these individuals come into the picture is they come in with a different mindset that's almost hyper-focused on, you know, explosive growth or increasing profitability. And listen, profit and purpose don't coexist really well. And so I guess what I'm saying is you need to be like super explicit with the guardrails, the non-negotiables, and make Mm -hmm. sure that that's clear to everyone, yourself, your employees, and these now outside individuals that are coming in. So so they can't and won't even try to mess it up because that's what my experience was is I, you know, early on, because I had no business background, I wanted to get advisors. And one of my first advisors was actually a good friend of mine who was older and very, very experienced. He was like a CEO of a a very respectable company. And his first advice was, you need to put your product in plastic. And I was like, why? And he said, oh, because your profits will just quadruple. He's like, plastic is four cents to five cents a bottle and glass is 25 to 30 cents a bottle. Like do the math. And I said that, yeah, that's right. But my product won't be good anymore, right? So it violated, and this is what I'm getting at, mm-hmm. it violated that like constitutional belief of like, we need to make the best product possible. And so because I had that, I was able to reference it and said, hey, plastic would change the flavor of my product, adversely change it. And therefore that violates this constitutional position that I've established for myself. So I won't do it, even if it means I'm turning my back on millions of dollars of additional profit. So that's where, that's just an example of how I think entrepreneurs have to navigate the world of making sure that you like triple check and double verify the advice that you're getting. And you really kind of compare or contrast it to your, the values that you established early on and that hopefully are still in place. Because then that will help you 
that will actually give you all the insight and the guidance and the directions that you need. You know, it's that kind of that instinct of does this feel right or does this feel wrong? Yeah, I really like that. I like the reference to like, you know, it's kind of like a brand constitution and a personal and, and for the company, because I think that you know, as especially when you're small, you, you, it's basically a barrage every day of advice and things that people say. And you can get conflicting advice in the same day from two different experts that say, do this, do this, do this. And unless you've really written down and, you know, and internalized, you know, where you want to have your different stakes in the ground and lines in the sand be for you, it can be really easy to just kind of get pushed off of the original path that you were meaning to, you know, you you can still be well-meaning, but you just didn't kind of set up a firm enough, firm enough boundaries for yourself. And pretty soon you're wandering down a path that you didn't mean to be wandering down. Yep, that's exactly right. That also reminds me of, you know, you have, you managed like, a, you know, massive brand ambassador force. Like I have been walking around in multiple cities and someone has come up to me and handed me a bottle of kombucha and they are always just ecstatic, upbeat, like it's always such a, you know, positive experience. And I'm curious about like, you know, if there's what goes into managing that as a company, what kind of strategies did you have you thought through of, you know, teaching people about kombucha and getting it in people's hands, um, you know, because sampling and education about a product is really important. And I'm sure it's, you know, shifted and grown over the past few years, but kind of curious about your perspective on, you know, kind of that your brand ambassadors out in the world, anything really intentional that you think of for, you know, hiring, maintaining, educating that those group of people out in the world, you know, representing you with your, you know, your name on the, the products. And yeah, kind of curious about your thoughts on that piece. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to, again, making sure that you're working with like-minded individuals that share a similar passion or philosophy. So, you know, what we somewhat deploy to ensure that anybody from brand ambassador to somebody running the bottling line, that they, you know, are subscribing to a similar philosophy is that first and foremost, you know, we believe that health is wealth, that, that being healthy and being happy and feeling good are the most important thing. Because if you don't have those things, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how rich, famous, popular, good looking you are, because all of those things will eventually fade if you're not healthy and happy. And so, and again, that's not a radical way of thinking. It's unfortunately at times becoming the less popular way of thinking as we're in such a narcissistic, materialistic world these days. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, there's still a community of people that understand that being happy and healthy is the most important. And so those are, those are the individuals that we like to work with. And and again, like I said earlier, then you don't really have to teach them anything as mm -hmm. far as their behavior. You don't have to teach them to be happy. You don't have to teach them to be kind. You don't have to teach them to be passionate. It's just, you know, it's part of who they are. What you do teach them is like the knowledge on the product and some of the technical stuff that, you know, it's important for them to know, but the, the energy that they put off, like the, what you reference is when you, if you've encountered our brand ambassadors, how they're, they're happy and kind and all of that. Like that's just because that's, that's who we try to cultivate. And, mm -hmm. and we've been fortunate and there's always exceptions where sometimes things change and we have to make a change, but more often than not, I think we do a really good job of establishing the appropriate criteria for who we want to work with. And then that cr criteria really ensures that we're working with great people that are going to behave beautifully no matter what and really represent the brand and and help further kind of our ethos. Are there any like really like, I don't know, like really 
tactical pieces in there that have helped you scale scale up a program like that? Like, you know, is it specific screening questions or like, cause I think, you know, and, and this applies to, to all hiring, but I feel like, especially with like brand ambassadors out in the world, like, you know, a brand will manage a few and then, you know, maybe get to, you know, 10. And then, you know, like as you keep growing it, it just, it becomes more and more difficult. And, and as the founder maybe gets more separated from the process, like, is there anything really tactical or from like a process perspective that you found helpful to like, make sure that, you know, as like a process person, I'm always thinking about that of like, you know, you, how do you have a process that supports the culture coming through, like, you know, t from a tactical perspective? Yeah. I mean, it really actually kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about not growing too fast. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there actually was a time, and this was right before the pandemic, where as much as I'm embarrassed to admit it, there was a time where not every single one of our brand ambassadors was meeting the quality standard that we had set for the brand and the company. And it obviously wasn't intentional. It was something that I then discovered later on. And it's because, lo and behold, we grew too fast, right? In 2018 and 2019, we had all these opportunities presented to us, like Coachella came to us and wanted us to present at Coachella for free, but wanted us to curate this like kombucha garden and so forth and so forth. So we were almost like forced to a certain degree to kind of triple our, our brand ambassador headcount. And so that can translate into hyper growth and growing too fast. And so in that, there was a time where we didn't necessarily have the, the type of quality of brand ambassadors that we needed. And so, so we learned from that. So now to answer your question, I think the best way to maintain it is, again, it's just to be very steady and thoughtful about it. You know, if you're hiring 10 people, it's easy to kind of screen them and be patient with who you get versus hiring 100 people. And so that goes back to kind of the rule of thumb that is a consistent theme, I think, in this conversation is entrepreneurs have to be mindful, they have to be patient, and they have to be somewhat conservative with how quickly they grow and what they do to support that growth. And, and, and then again, when you do that, you're able to maintain your values, your integrity, and ultimately your quality standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I'm also wondering if you, if you have any advice, because it's kind of related to, you know, brand ambassadors and educating people about your product. You know, when you started, kombucha hadn't been, wasn't available in bottles. And so I'm curious about, you know, now you have helped build out this industry, which is incredible. And we have other, you know, we have founders in our community that are, that are, you know, some, some of them are operating in existing categories for sure, but some are kind of venturing into a new territory, a new category that doesn't really exist yet. And I'm wondering if you have any tips around that, or, you know, if there was any kind of, uh, you know, maybe frustration is the wrong word, but just like, you know, like, how do I get people to know about, like, I know my product's incredible. How do I get people to even give it a shot? Like to get them to try it. I know they're going to like it. Like any advice for kind of, you know, that you wish you could go back and give yourself of, you know, building out a, basically a new category. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're still kind of going through it, um, not with kombucha per se, but there's a degree there, which I'll share in a minute. But I mean, if you look at our portfolio of products, whether it's like our raw coconut yogurt or our mushroom, ancient and mushroom elixir, which is our live or our, our raw water kefir and so forth and so forth. I mean, we actually, I actually really, um, for better or for worse, I'm more interested and intrigued with creating something that 
the world has not seen yet before versus creating mm-hmm. something that the world has already seen. And so, so you're, so I can answer your question from ongoing experience. I mean, when you're creating something new, that's quote unquote, like a, you're creating a category, so to speak, you have to be patient, right? Because it's not going to happen overnight. It's not like selling like, you know, the next coconut water, or the next cold brew that people already know you're, you're kind of exposing them to something that they've never seen before. And the, the, the human nature typically is somewhat a little bit fearful of things that we don't understand. And so new things can sometimes fall into that category. So that's what I went through with kombucha. But I'm going through that even with our mushroom elixir. I guess the, the short answer is you got to be patient. You got to be passionate. And what I mean by that is you have to be convicted in your belief of this is why I'm doing this. And this is why I'm doing it this way. And this is you know what I want the world to benefit from. That has to be like absolutely positively unwavering. So because when you have, again, the patience and the passion, then the third thing is you can't be greedy. And I, and it's a little bit synonymous with the patience is that, you know, it's, you're, you're, it's sometimes easy for entrepreneurs and it's certainly applied to me to a certain degree that when you're starting something new, you're looking around you and you're still, you're seeing success in other areas of your world, perhaps. Like, let's say, you know, like when I was doing kombucha, what was popular around me was vitamin water. Mm, and vitamin mm-hmm. water was like growing ridiculously and then ultimately sold to Coke for $4 billion. So if, if I was, you know, again, that could have potentially frustrated me. But here, you know, I'm taking the slow and steady path and this other brand just like blew up overnight and sold for billions. So that's why you can't be greedy. Like what I always use is what my, my fulfillment then and now is, is my fulfillment of doing what I do comes from knowing that I'm making the best products that I can make and that it's helping people's lives. It's not I'm making the most money that I can make or I'm the richest or the most famous. Like that's not important. And so that helps me stay focused and not get too tempted or too persuaded or even too discouraged by the success that's around me. So I'm able to be passionate, patient, and somewhat humble with my expectations. And and that way I can kind of weather any storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. For a line like the um the alive mushroom elixirs, or like I was just able to try the Agua de Kiefer the other day at, at Target. I the branding is stunning. I saw it on the shelf. I was like, I immediately need to buy this. I I bought the prickly pear version. And then I was like, I wonder who this is by. And I turned it over and I was like, of course it's by my, you know, one of the favorites, you know, who else would come up with this incredible branding and flavor and another amazing living food. It was no surprise once I, you know, turned over the bottle. Um, But, you know, what are you thinking about with those, you know, from an education perspective? Like, what does that look like from a, you know, marketing perspective? Like, what is your what are you working through with your marketing team to think about building out like for the sales team? Like, is there anything, you know, since you've gone through the process with kombucha, are there specific kind of tactical things and different functions that you're thinking through? Like, oh, let's let's equip the sales team with this or the marketing team with this. Like, you know, kind of curious about anything from those those current products that you're building out. Yeah, you know what it is, is that I, first of all, thank you for what you said earlier, because I, I created um, Agua de Kefir from scratch and the branding was kind of my personal creation. And so I love that you resonated with it. Um, so. You know, whenever I create something, whether it's a flavor within like our Synergy line or a brand new product line, you know, it's almost always coming from a personal place of, you know, I want, I have a certain need state, right? So with like 
I'll go to kefir. I created that because I wanted something that was a living beverage that had naturally occurring nutrients in it, like kombucha does. But I, you know, I didn't want, I wanted to have a different flavor profile, different use occasion. You know, I could maybe have it at night, have it with food, mm -hmm. use it to hydrate. Because, you know, kombucha is actually not hydrating because it's so cleansing. It's more of a diuretic. And so, you know, I, I look at my life and my health holistically, and I don't believe that any one thing is the silver bullet, right? Everything kind of collectively plays into your overall health. And so, you know, a lot of the products we create come from a personal need state that I have. And then the way I try to design them and, and ultimately position them are, are almost like, again, not to belabor the analogy, but almost like having different children, right? Like I didn't, I never want to have five twins. You know, I want to have a, a beautiful, diverse family that each offspring has its own identity and its own personality, and, and then subsequently kind of its own place in the world. And so that's how I see our portfolio of products. So that's why there's an explicit degree of, of attention and effort putting put into making them look unique, giving them their own kind of use occasion of hydration versus, you know, other stuff. And then also allowing them to have their own personality. Is that something that I, it might be a little bit unconventional, I think, but you know, I, I, I think brands need to be consistent, but I don't think brands should ever, I think brands need to be careful that they're not being redundant. And mm -hmm. so like when, when I started to, my first product that I created outside of Synergy was Alive. And the mistake that I made back in 2017 when I first launched it is it looked a lot like a Synergy. And, mm. and that's because I was being told like, you need to be consistent. Like you, the brand, like look and feel needs to kind of thread like almost overtly across everything that you do. And so I took that advice, but it was actually bad advice um, for me, at least, because it was very confusing for the consumer. They didn't know what this was or, or they thought they knew what it was, but they, what they thought it was was wrong. So long story short, you know, I've learned that for us, at least, delineating different positions and paths for each product to kind of have its own identity is the best what is the best thing to do for us as well as the best thing for the consumer so they have that diversity if that makes sense that makes a lot of sense and yeah i i was actually i was having dinner with a friend the other night and i was mentioning that this interview was coming up and she was like oh is that you like the kombucha like i think it's the same brand maybe that makes the like the alive the mushroom like that is my favorite drink, but you know, I'll have to try the kombucha because I did, you know, I didn't quite make the connection that they were the same brand. And so I thought that was really interesting. And to hear you talk about how like each product kind of like is allowed to have its own personality. And it's not just about, you know, kind of putting the same logo on, on every product across because it's not giving each product kind of the chance to, to be its own thing. And for consumers to understand that they're very different products with very different use cases. And so that's really interesting to kind of hear the strategy. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I'm also wondering, you know, you have your your name. GT is on every single bottle, all your products, GT's Living Foods. And, you know, as the company has grown, you know, obviously you are a market leader. You've been featured in about every major publication. And I'm wondering for you as as you've grown, like, what has it been like to have kind of a, a public presence and for people to see your name everywhere and kind of have formed, you know, their own versions of you in their mind or from listening to, to interviews or whatever? Like, has that been, is that difficult to like manage? Is there anything that you've had that you do to kind of stay centered or to know 
uh, stay true to yourself. Like, I just feel like it'd be really surreal to have your name and, you know, just across the world and have so many people have seen your name. You know, I'm, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, especially for me, because as I mentioned earlier, I didn't get started to get famous. Right. And mm-hmm. by the way, I'm, I d- still don't think I'm famous, but I think everything <laughs> is somewhat relative. And so therefore, so, but there wasn't a desire to be a public figure in any shape or size. But with an entrepreneur, as soon as you start growing your business, you quickly realize that, okay, I need to behave like a leader um, because there's people that look up to me. So whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, again, if you're a company of 10, you still have nine or 10 people looking up to you. So there's a leadership role that you almost immediately fall into. And I think when you're being a leader, it sets you up for somewhat of a public figure position because you're, you know, you're, you're tasked with leading by example or being looked up to or being somebody that has to have the answers to the questions or the guidance that people need. Fortunately, I was able to somewhat stay under the radar as a public figure for like the first 15 years of my career. And so I was able to somewhat groom myself or prepare myself to ultimately be a little bit more of a public figure when that happened, which that really did happen, I think, um, in 2000, I think it was 2018 or 2019, where I think some of the, the things that I was doing or saying or participating were a little bit more public facing. And then I think the popularity of the, the brand was growing to an all-time high. So those two together put me more in the public's eye. But at the end of the day, I mean, like I said, I didn't start this to be famous. So I don't, I don't put a lot of equity in any kind of fame or any kind of public perception of me. I mean, I obviously don't want to be perceived as a horrible person, <laughs> you right. know, but like I could take or leave the followers on Instagram or the followers on LinkedIn or whatever platform. What I just want to make sure is that people, and this actually was something that pushed me more into the public's eye, is that I've learned that if, if people don't know who you are, they, especially for a company like mine, they can sometimes think that this is just a faceless corporation, right? Because there's a lot of those right now where even in the health and wellness space, it's they, they play a good game of saying like, oh, this is coming from founders or a founder's type of story or mission. But in reality, it's just like, it's actually like Coke or Pepsi wearing a disguise. So mm-hmm. I learned that early on that it's important for me to be somewhat conspicuous with the fact that this isn't a faceless corporation. GT is the name of a person, a human being that started this. And what you're buying or drinking or supporting is an extension of his philosophy. Therefore, I think it's important that you understand, you know, where everything's coming from. So you, you have that context. That, in addition to, I've learned that if, if, a, if an entrepreneur is too quiet, that someone could inadvertently steal their voice and therefore ch- start changing the narrative. And so we started seeing that in our industry a few years ago. And I think that was yet another reason why I felt more obligated to lean into a consumer facing conversation, because I really wanted to make sure that people were getting things from my mouth and in hearing my side versus getting somewhat unsubstantiated information, that's somewhat fake news from it, from a, another source. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I mean, as someone that has, you know, has seen you as a public figure and, you know, followed you and appreciated the kind of connection to your product. And I, I always appreciate that you, you do seem to, you know, are out there answering questions. You're out there sharing your story. And like, I think it was a couple years ago, there was one media outlet kind of had a interest, you know, they had cut up an interview with you and in, in a way that kind of had a, a particular, um, 
focus to it. And there was a YouTuber that kind of reacted and you just reached out to them and said, Hey, come to my house, come hang out. Let's, you know, let's hang out and have kombucha. And then they published that video. And like, that was just so fun that you just like, you kind of took a narrative that, you know, someone was kind of trying to push you down and show people that you were this one version. And you just, you just kind of reacted and say, Hey, no, come get to know the the real me. And I really enjoyed, you know, seeing that and just, you know, seeing you get to have, have fun and just, you know, kind of show yourself for who you are. So I, I think that that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's important just to be real. Cause at the end of the day, like I'm a human, just like you, you know, I have my hopes, dreams, wishes, and fears, just like you. And I think it's important for people to see entrepreneurs and, you know, people that we kind of put on a pedestal as humans, mm-hmm. because then it just, it, it shows that we have that same vulnerability that you have, and then it helps us relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which leads into my last couple questions are just a little bit more like fun Goofy. The first one is, um, I believe you've had some like interesting pets. Like I think you, I've seen you with an owl. I've seen you with the bunny. And like, I'm curious, like, do you still like what pets do you have now? Like, you know, are your are your kids into pets? Like, what's you know what's pet life at, at the at the house like now? It's a really great question. So right now it's actually pretty calm, and we just have one bunny. Um, I like bunnies because I grew up with bunnies when I was a, a young boy and. Um, they unfortunately didn't live very long because we li- lived up in the hills. So somehow, some way, like the coyotes, the owls would get to them. And mm-hmm. so they would never last very long. But as an adult, I was gifted a bunny and was able to now protect her. And she's li- she actually lived up to the age of 11. And then she passed away at the beginning of this year. So I got another bunny. So that's bunny that you probably saw in the Forbes video that you referenced a minute ago. Um, her name was Madonna. And then I replaced Aww. her with a new bunny when she unfortunately passed away with another bunny named Gizmo. And um, they, you know, they're, they're part of the family. The kids love them. I think it's important that children are, can interact with another living thing because then they understand the sensitivity and care and thought that needs to go into not only interacting with them, but ultimately even taking care of them. At some point, we want to get a dog because we also think that's the next stage of animal life with children. But that's in LA. In Hawaii, where I, I have a, a home, there's thought to develop a little bit of a ranch because we have some extra land. So, you know, want to mm. get some ch- chickens, want to get maybe like a miniature bull um, or like a little goat or something like that. Because, I mean, again, I think animals certainly are an extension of nature. And I think they have such a gentleness and a selflessness to them. And in many ways, they almost have like an unconditional love. I think it's really important for humans in general, but specifically young humans like children to interact with because I think it it develops character and perspective. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that. Because yeah, as someone that, you know, grew up on a farm, like we had horses and, you know, a bunny and cats and dogs and even a bird at one point. And I, I think that that was so just pivotal to growing up. And yeah, you develop a certain gentleness and just understanding of, you know, how you impact other other beings and creatures and how you can impact for good and for not good. And so, yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And my other fun uh, question is, I believe, you know, from online that you are, you seem quite into Halloween and dressing up. I've seen an <laughs> incredible Hellraiser um, costume that you did, Two-Face, like um, I've seen the families, the Flintstones, like, is there a Halloween costume, like either for you or as a family that you're like, I hope we get to do this, like in a future Halloween? 
Oh boy. Uh, well, first of all, I love Halloween because it's close to my birthday. And then oh, I nice. also love it because, you know, I think it's, I think it's really impressive when humanity takes on a different identity mm-hmm. and, and allows that temporarily, that temporary new identity to allow them to kind of change their perspective, even if it's just for one evening. So that, that's why I really love like the dressing up process. Um, wow. Of a costume that I, that I, I hope I get to be, you know, it's funny. I, I kind of dictate the costumes with the, the two costumes that you referenced, Two-Face and then Pinhead. They were part of a, the theme of an event that I host every year that we've dubbed Fright Night. So it's a Halloween mm. party that I host for, you know, 800 of my closest friends. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I like to establish a general theme. It's not a mandatory theme. It's somewhat directional, but like, I did like the superheroes, supervillains, which was the two-faced one. And then I did um, the Adams Family one, which was just more goblins and ghouls where I did Pinhead. So this upcoming party, I'm doing like a like a crazy killer clown slash haunted circus type vibe. So, mm. so, so I guess I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm trying to actually think of what my costume is going to be. I haven't decided. Um, I just like things that allow you to be, to allow you to disappear. And to take mm-hmm. on again that that identity for that night. So I don't. Sorry, I don't know if I have a good answer for you right now. That's okay. It's super interesting to hear your kind of perspective behind that. And I love to dress up. And so you know, when I've seen that from from you, I I thought that that would be fun to to hear a little bit more about. So that's awesome. And then you know, I guess my you know a, a kind of final question just would be you know you've done so many interviews and I've listened to so many of them and I'm grateful for all the time that you've shared for you know people like me to listen and learn the story behind products that we love. Like, is there anything that, you know, you've wished that you've been asked or that you don't get a chance to talk about, you know, as much as that you'd like? I just wanted to give you a chance to share anything that, you know, you're like, man, nobody ever asked me this and I've always wanted to share about it. Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think I actually have been able to share a lot about my life in recent times. So I'm grateful for that. I mean, I guess the, the, the part that I never that I feel that you can never overemphasize is again the the love and care and humility and thoughtfulness that goes into what we do. You know, I think in this day and age, it's easy to overlook that because there's so much noise in the marketplace, whether that's social media, whether it's online, whether it's in other areas that I think even like the best brands can get misunderstood. And I think sometimes we inadvertently get pulled into that equation of People thinking like we're a giant brand that's sold everywhere, that has all this success, so we must be the bad guys, or we must be in it for the money, or there must be like a big brand behind us kind of being the puppet master. And so I always just try to go out of my way to say that's actually not the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are, yes, we're sizable in our market share and where we sell our products, but we're still very small in everywhere else. Like our, the way we behave is very small company. The way we create is very small company. You know, our values are very like small company. Like we're not greedy. We're not trying to take over the world or anything like that. Like we just want to make great products that will, will really change and improve the lives of people who enjoy them. And we really want to create things that in many ways kind of are, are, are somewhat provocative, if that makes sense, where they they, they encourage people to, to look at their lives differently and reassess things differently or get new questions or find answers to certain questions or challenge the status quo. And so that's really who we are. And I think it's, it's, hard, it's, it's hard to convey that sometimes through a label or through a website or through a social media. 
So I think that's the one thing, and thank you for the opportunity that if I had the mic time, you know, that's what I would always want to put out is like, we are it, like the truest definition of a purpose-driven brand. And I, and I, and that's the number one priority I want people to take away from. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, I'm, I feel like a, a personal testimonial for, you know, the impact of the brand of like, you know, having a kombucha most days is always an opportunity of reflection for me and a reminder to, you know, to take care of my body and think about what's going to make me feel good. And, you know, and following, you know, some of the stories you've had, like the, the, the bloom series that you've done and like, you know, everything you, that your you and your team put out in the world kind of is, a, is an opportunity for reflection. So I feel personally kind of impacted by the purpose that you've put out in the world. So I think that's really cool to hear. Thank you. And thanks for all the support. It means so much to me. Awesome. Well, is there any other like, you know, products or, you know, things coming out this year that we should be on the lookout? Like, I think there's a new smaller size that I saw teased at, you know, Walgreens, everyone, you know, if they, if for some reason, somehow they haven't had the products yet, I'll make sure the links are all in the show notes, but you know, anything that you want to tease that, you know, that people should be keeping an eye out for this year. Yeah. I mean, I I actually really appreciate the opportunity to say something because we have, we actually have a lot going on right now. I mean, we have our Island Bliss Synergy that we debuted earlier this year, which was inspired by my travels to Hawaii specifically the island of Kauai. You know, we have the Agua de Kefir that you referenced, which is brand new. It's right now, it's only sold at the Target, but later this year, you'll see it at other stores. That's a really special product because it's low in sugar and super hydrating and super great for your energy levels, your gut health, and your hydration. The Alive Medicinal Mushroom Elixir that we make, I mean, we have these incredible soda flavors like root beer and cola and lemon lime, which is like basically a 7-Up. And for those, I mean, it's really remarkable because I think a lot of us stop drinking soda because we associate it with like unhealthy beverages, but we've been, we're slowly trying to change the script on that or the narrative on that because our live tastes just like a soda, but it's so healthy for you. And then last but not least, our, our Cocoyo. I mean, we make this, it's really a labor of love more than anything because it's not easy to make, but we take two young Thai coconuts and we crack them ourselves in Los Angeles, and then make this like delicate, fluffy, delicious raw coconut yogurt that makes every other yogurt look like a pudding. And, you know, when people try it, they have this like incredible reaction because it's like something you've never tried before. So, you know, I just encourage you and your your listeners to please check these out and let us know what you think, because we really do put our hearts and souls into everything we make, like I said, and um, always want to hear what people think about what we're making. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I I got to try the Island Bliss. It was incredible. It was everything that I wanted it to be. It was absolutely amazing. I have the peach cocoyo in the fridge at home. Also just phenomenal. So yeah, I, I hope that everyone gets to try new products and appreciate you you sharing about them. This has just been so wonderful, GT. Thank you so, so much for sharing and you know taking this time to share with our community and on our show specifically. It means so much. I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful to you. And for your team and just, you know, everything that you've, you've done in, in the world. I'm, I'm so grateful. So thank you so, so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me on and thanks for listening to me. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, we'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our Startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer. And on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.